0: Well, we are gathered together tonight. We were normally going to be looking at Baptist Catechism question number 106, which Paul was preparing to preach for us. But since he is under the weather today, uh, we've decided to shuffle things around a little bit. And since our subject matter is going to be the same for the next several weeks, we didn't see it to be too big of a stretch to preach 107 instead of 106 tonight, since 107 was what I was preparing for next week. So I just pushed up my timetable. But... 106, which would have preceded tonight's, um, uh, tonight's discussion, had to do with the, the purpose of the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. So if you'd like to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, um, we're going to be kind of rooted there. And then I'm going to scripture spam you tonight with a lot of different verses that are going to help us to see the, the full and contextual way that God intends for us to approach Him in prayer this evening. The answer to question 106 says that the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer, but that the special rule of direction is that prayer which that prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And so Paul's going to, next week, look at the fact that, thank you, son, look at the fact that the Lord's Prayer is of particular use to training us up in righteousness and helping us to know exactly how to pursue the, the Lord in communication. And this week, we're going to look at what would have come next, which is question 107. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer to that, which I will hopefully have up in the screen in just one moment. Is it going to work? It's not looking good, folks. I don't think the PowerPoint's going to happen today.
1: Just do a next
0: for you. Okay, if we can have somebody just kind of doing it on the computer up in the sound booth, what I'll do is I'll just give you a little hand signal, and, um, and you can just forward it with the arrows. That should work possibly, too. So, yeah, the air conditioning is, is not on, but they have a remote up there, brother, so you can turn it on easily with the remote that's up there. You can turn the remote on up
2: there. I'll
0: figure it out. All right. So question 107 asks, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer to that question is the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our father in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us and that we should pray with and for others. And so you can turn with. Matthew chapter 6, if you're not there already, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching the fundamentally important practice of praying to God. Now, Jesus in this section doesn't say, now you might pray something like this. Instead, he starts off showing us a great example of prayer that will become to us like a model of prayer that will help us to know how to pray more efficiently and to cover the things that really help us and benefit us as we seek the Lord in prayer. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, And when you pray, when you, pray you must not be like the hypocrites. So we're going to see that he precedes this special prayer with two examples of what not to pray like, one example of what to pray like, all of which have to do with our attitudes towards prayer. And so the first negative example here, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and that the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have they have received their reward. So like the hypocrites, um, those who pray out loud with boisterous words, hoping to attract the attention, of others are not praying for the right reasons their heart is not to communion with God their heart is instead to grandstand in front of others so that it might be seen by many and might be thought to be particularly spiritual and influential for their long and flowery prayers uh, the second thing that we are told not to do is mentioned in verse 7 it says when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for many uh, for their many words Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so do not pray like the Pharisees who heap up empty phrases and use too many words. Uh, I remember in my English literature studies, I was a literature major in college. uh, I learned that if you ever, ever read Charles Dickinson, he was literally paid by the word. So there's a reason why his stories are hundreds of of pages long, because the more he wrote, the more he profited from it. And I think some people think that somehow we're paid spiritually by the word for our prayers. They make their prayers very long and drawn out, and they do so not because they have a sincere desire to be in communication with God so much, as they want to appear to be hyper-spiritual. So we should check our hearts when we have a tendency to do that. There, there is something to be said about efficiency in our communications with God, especially considering the fact that he knows already what is on our hearts. So after he gives us these two examples of how not to approach the idea of prayer, he does give us one pray like this kind of instruction regarding the attitude rather than the form of prayer. In Verse six, it says, but when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so this is an encouragement that we are to pray privately. That we are not to be a people who only pray in the context of the gathered saints when other people are watching us and expecting us to pray. But our desire to communicate with God should go beyond the gathered assembly, and should extend into our private times when we are on our own by ourselves as well. So two negative instructions and one positive instruction set up our attitude towards prayer. Our prayers should be vertical in emphasis. They should be humble in nature. Now, if you're clever and you've read ahead to get the context, maybe you went back and said, well, why don't we start at verse one? That's a good thing to do. I I, uh, encourage you to do that uh, when a verse starts kind of halfway through a chapter, but you might've noticed at the beginning of chapter six speaks about how to properly give charity and how not to give charity and it echoes in many ways, the same concerns that Jesus shows about prayer that often people give in order to show themselves to be very generous and to receive the credit for having given to somebody who's in need. And Jesus likewise warns against that kind of an attitude that our piety, our Desire to approach God should not be uh, designed to impress the counsel of our peers, but rather should be a sincere desire to grow near to and please the Lord. So, uh, having established a little bit about our attitudes towards prayer, our heart posture, if you will, Jesus begins to lay out the form of a godly prayer that's worth repeating. And again, he doesn't say, here's just one of many prayers you might pray. Instead, in verse 9, we hear him say specifically, pray then like this. So there's imperative behind this. God is instructing us and giving us direction on how we should approach the throne of grace through communication. So this is intended to set a pattern that's worthy of being followed. He also doesn't say here in verse 9 that this is the one and only way that you can pray. Nor does he implore us to pray this exact prayer, word for word, over and over again, so that we can check off the box and say that we've prayed the way that Jesus tells us to pray. If this is intended by Jesus to be a pattern, then the details should matter to us. We shouldn't see this as just the next in a series of rote prayers, but we should examine this with an open heart, ready to be taught by our Savior, how is best for us to talk to him. So let us take the time over the next several weeks to examine this useful pattern for prayer, beginning with the first words that Jesus uses as an introduction or a preface of sorts to the exemplary prayer that he teaches to his disciples. So we begin with this preface, which is a formal beginning to the prayer that rightfully precedes any petitions or requests that we might make in the course of this kind of a prayer. So if prayer is a form of communication, the preface has something to say about the two parties that are communicating. And so let's look at it word for word. We begin with the charge, our father. Now, the thing that might stand out to you first is this designation of God as father. This morning in our time in Hosea, we spend a good amount of of our time together, focusing and rejoicing on the benefits of being an adopted child of God by grace. And we're going to look again at that tonight. But we don't want to skip over that first word of the preface in favor of the second. The very first word of the preface is our. And indeed, this small word tells us something significant about prayer. There is a corporate emphasis put on prayer here. And I think it balances beautifully that admonition that we read just a few verses ago to pray in private. When Jesus says This is how we ought to pray. And he says, our father. He reminds us that prayer is not to be exclusively private. He doesn't say pray, my father, though the phrase is certainly true of every believer. If you are a Christian, you count the Lord God as your father. Uh, But he does talk about this approach to God in a plural sense. Look at how the prayer unfolds. Give us today Our daily bread. This is not an individual approaching God for their own needs exclusively. It says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who owe a debt to us. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. So you can see the very obvious corporate nature of this important prayer that teaches us how to follow after the Lord. He is our Father personally, but never to the exclusion of the other children in his family. And so church, as Jesus is teaching us to pray here, there's an immediate emphasis put on the corporate nature of praying. This is especially important to note as some Christians have taken the previous instruction in verse six to an unhealthy and extreme uh, precedence, almost beginning to look down on any form of prayer where people can see you praying. I've heard people say, do you have a prayer closet in your house? Do you have a place where you can go privately and pray? Because if not, you need to build one. You need to put one aside. You need to get a special place that's just you and the Lord. And there can be an overemphasis on this idea of praying, not so that you'll be noticed by others, to such a degree that we miss out on the fact that when we pray, we're praying as a family prays to the father of the family. So verse nine is in some ways a defense against those who have misused verse six. It's a defense against praying past Jesus to the crowd who is listening, not not a condemnation of gathered prayer. When, When Jesus warns us in verse six that we're not to pray so that all might hear us pray, he's not saying go privately and pray only because if you pray in a group, it doesn't count. Or if you pray in a group, you get just what you deserve in that group. What he's saying is if your aim is to impress the people around you, then you're missing the whole point of prayer. So, Ask yourself this question. Does your praying always feel like a private jam session with Jesus? Because if it does, that's a problem. It really should not feel that way. A personal Jesus, this idea of just you and the Savior, is a really attractive concept in our self-centered culture, and we we need to be able to identify the dangers of that. People in our culture, they want everything to be boutique, They want things to be bespoke. They want things their own way. They want to customize life so that it suits their desires and their needs. And we have a tendency in our sin nature to even go so far as to try to make Jesus be exactly who we want Jesus to be. We almost want Jesus for ourselves. And that's a big mistake, friends, because we have been saved not into a one on one exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ, we've been saved into a family where Christ is our brother. And God is our father. And our prayer should reflect that. I remember a few years back, uh, someone brought an ad into our church office from another church in town. I don't think they're even a church anymore. It was a church that was heavily influenced by prosperity gospel themes. And this was, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. The ad which sadly I've seen Christians do too often, was a ripoff of a, of a popular ad in the secular business world. They had taken the Burger King mantra of your way right away, and they had sh- stolen that font and put their church name in it and said, church, your way, right away. And there was a picture of the pastor and the first lady of the church back to back in sort of a smirky little sassy pose and they said in the flyer that if you want church on the go, we've got a 45-minute service for you. In and out, get your Lord and, and take him with you wherever you go. But if you want a little bit more time, we've got extended worship. We've got, we've got more contemporary music in this service. And it was almost like an a la carte. It's almost as if church was not for the Lord at all, but it was simply a way to meet the expectations and the religious guilt of the people who are going to the service. Let us not allow our time of prayer to be infected by that self-centered mindset. Prayer is not just you and Jesus. Jesus loves you and he loves your brothers and sisters and he loves the saints that came before you and have constituted his people years and years before you even walked this earth. There are times when we rightly are communicating to him about remarkably personal matters, sharing honestly with our God things that we might not even tell another soul I mean, think about the Psalms and the way that the psalmists are often very open and vulnerable with the Lord God. Psalm 31 is a great example of this. It begins as such. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. You are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. How do we know this is a personal prayer? Well, I would just say that, look at the pronouns, right? Whoever is writing this psalm, I believe this is a psalm of David. He's speaking directly about his personal experience, right? He's talking about what he's going through. He's talking about what he's experiencing in life. And there's not a lot of us and we and our in this prayer. I imagine that Ed, as he goes into the hospital tonight with grave concerns about his health, could read this psalm and it would be an encouragement to him, reminding him that the Lord God cares about what he's dealing with, that God knows him and knows his struggles and understands his fears and the context of him losing a loved one from a similar malady just recently. But how do we know this prayer isn't spoken to God in a secret prayer room? We know because we're reading it publicly right now because God has included it in the catalog of the Psalms by which all of the church benefits, right? We are all blessed by hearing this man's prayer, which might seem private on the surface, but has become public to all of us, along with prayers of confession of sin, along with prayers of transparent weakness, And humility, and even confessions of doubt by God's saints, prayers of personal gratitude and petition, those personal prayers that have been captured in the Psalms are for the benefit of the body as well. Personal and private prayers are good, but our general praying to our fathers should come from the acknowledgement that we have been brought into the family of God and that our brothers and sisters are in need of what God provides every bit as much as we are in need of it. Now, in praying, We should not just pray for ourselves, but we should be praying for others. And that's one of the things that the preface makes very clear to us. Ephesians 6.18 also makes it clear to us. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So if, if we're going to learn how to pray from our savior, then the preface of the Lord's prayer reminds us that we should be praying for one another. We do this quite often. This meeting is one of the main hubs for corporate prayer in our church. But we also have Slack as an app on our phones by which we can immediately reach out to one another. And what a benefit this is to the saints. I mean, in times before, messages did not travel nearly this quickly in ancient times. But when we have a need, we can immediately begin praying for one another. What a blessing and a benefit that is to know that no matter what you're dealing with, with a couple of keystrokes, you can have an army of saints lifting you up before the Lord. We do this in our family prayers. When we gather together to pray over a meal or or to pray with our children before we go to bed, we we pray together as a family because we know that we're a part of a greater family and that we want to lift up each other's needs before our God. We pray with our friends when we Fellowship after church on Sunday, one of the things I love to see more than anything is brothers and sisters hanging around after the service, talking to one another. And then I love when I see a conversation going on. Maybe I don't even know what's happening in the conversation. And I see them nod and one person reaches over and just puts a hand on that other brother or sister and they both bow together and they share in that intimate petition to the Lord God over that need that was just discussed in that conversation. What an encouragement to my soul to see the saints of God seeking God together. The beautiful picture really of heaven on earth when we seek the Lord together like that, when we care enough about each other's needs that we lift each other up to the Lord right there, right in the context of the conversation. So in praying, we should not only approach God privately, but also corporately as a body along with other saints. And in Acts 12, 12, we see an example of this. When he realized this, meaning uh, that, that an angel had set Peter free from prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So giving you a little context to where this verse comes from. Peter was a preaching man and he preached the truth. Even when the officials of the synagogue said, quit preaching that. It's disruptive. We don't want to hear it from you. Stay silent. He said, I can't stay silent. This is the truth. This is the message that God has given to me. So he continued to preach. And so they told on him and the high priests sent armed guards to arrest him and they put him into prison. Now, his brothers and sisters in Christ hated to see him locked behind bars. They were concerned for his well-being. They'd just seen their savior executed for preaching similar things. And so what do they do? They gather together and they pray together and they ask that the Lord would bless their brother Peter, give him strength and hopefully cause him to be released from that prison so that he might preach again. Now, ironically, as they're praying for him to be released, they hear a knock at the door and one of the young ladies goes to the door and it's Peter. And she comes back and runs and says, Peter's at the door. And they're like, shh, we're praying for Peter. (laughs) You don't understand, right? Peter's locked up. We're praying that God would let our friend go. And she's like, No, he's at the door, right? It kind of reminds me of one of my, my favorite Bodie Bakum sermons that I've ever heard. Uh, it came at a, a shepherd's conference some years back where he was preaching uh, out of 2 Timothy. And if you know 2 Timothy, it's a really powerful letter because it may be the last correspondence that we have from the Apostle Paul. And he's preaching 2 Timothy, and, and Bodie Bakum uh, confesses, You know, if I was Paul, I would have wrote a much different letter than he wrote. You know, he's writing to Timothy and he says, they're probably going to execute me soon. These are likely my last days and maybe even my last words to you. So gird up your heart, be a man and be ready because when I'm gone, you need to keep doing what I was doing before they killed me. So it's a real a real powerful encouraging message to this young man. Do not be afraid and walk in the steps that I walked and train up others so that if they kill you, there'll be somebody else ready to take up that mantle and to preach the truth. He says, but I I tell you what, if I'm being honest, I would have preached a lot differently to Timothy. I would have sent a different letter. I would have wrote to Timothy and said, Timothy, you know those guys who prayed for Peter when he was in jail? Go find those guys and have them pray for me. (laughs) Because I'm the guy in jail now, right? The prayers of righteous men and women availed much in that moment. And we've seen similar things where the gathered saints lifted up their hearts and their minds to the Lord and it was pleasing to him to respond in sometimes miraculous ways, to see the body of Christ blessed. And even when the affliction is not removed, to see them strengthened so that they can stand in truth and walk with integrity through whatever trial God has in store for them. So keep the saints in mind when you pray. When I pray to the Lord, I almost always, I I never even really noticed this until I was preparing for this message. I almost always speak in the first person plural. Thank you for providing for us, God. Please continue to forgive us of our sins. We need your help with this struggle that we're going through right now. To have a corporate mindset in your prayer is good. Not that you can never pray something specifically about yourself. You should do that as well. But don't let your prayer time become just a a personal one-on-one conversation where the rest of the saints who are a blessing to you as well are forgotten and left to decide. So that first word, our, reminds us of the corporate nature of prayer and the impact that it has not only on ourselves, but on the whole body of Christ. And the second word in this preface is important as well, our Father. The second word is An instructive command that tells us something remarkable about our relationship to God. Our interaction with him is properly understood to follow the pattern of children interacting with their loving father. God is the father of every Christian by way of adoption. And we see that in in many passages of scripture. We have it here in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6. Where the apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ And so how has he brought us into the family? He's brought us into the family in love. He predestined to make us his children through adoption. And he does this through his son, Jesus Christ. What a blessing to know that we are near to him in that way and that our relationship to God is not the relationship that we would have if we were on trial and there was a judge seated on the throne who had the authority and the responsibility to send us to jail or to set us free. Our relationship with God is far different than that. Though he is properly the judge of all, to us, he is also father. Galatians 4, verses four through seven speaks of this as well. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There is a, a very real sense in which we have broken the law of God. But through Christ Jesus, the animosity between us and God has been laid to rest. There is now a peace where conflict used to reign. And so we are grateful for the fact that we can appeal to our God, knowing that he is a father who cares for us and desires to meet our needs. And in the, in the Roman culture that Jesus is preaching in and that Paul is preaching in here, adoption was considered full family inclusion. It was not some kind of sep, uh, secondary status within the family. Oh, you see somebody who's a charity case, you can bring them along and they'll be like a stepchild to you. No, if you were going to adopt somebody, there was a legal proceeding in which that individual now legally had claim to the same rights as a son within your family. So by adoption, we're not just some charity case that God lets come and eat the scraps from the table. We have a place alongside the other brothers and sisters that carry the same name that we do. We are legally bound in a familial covenant with our God. Now, I recognize that not everyone here on earth has a loving example of an earthly father. So for some, this is a difficult metaphor to understand. That's a source of heartache for the very reason that most of us recognize a loving father when we see one, even if we don't have one. A loving father is a father who's involved, who's attentive, who is strong who's a provider for his children. He's a giver of wisdom. What he knows of the world, he wants to share with his kids. A good father is a patient father. He is forgiving, knowing that as a father, he's training up little children who are trying the world out and will make many, many mistakes along the way. So if you do not have a loving father on earth, Do not think that you cannot think of God as a better father than what you've experienced. For God is not a father in the limited and shaky way that even the best earthly fathers can possibly be. He's a father in the perfect sense of what a father is and can do. That Yahweh is our father means that we're connected to him in a way that transcends voluntary social interaction. There's promise there. There is family contract. Families are bound together for life. And God, through his son Christ, has bound you to himself for eternity. And that is why, in part, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. This speaks of petitioning God in prayer. And why is it possible for me, a known and confessing sinner, to take counsel with the most powerful being there is? Because he has invited me in and because he has a loving affection for me. That's why. Romans 8 verses 14 through 17 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what does this passage of scripture tell us in verse 16? It tells us that we're children, but we're not just children. Yeah, we are children. We, we don't know what we need to know. There's much growing that needs to be done. We will be immature at times. We will throw fits. We are children, but we're God's children. We belong to him. And so there is a vested interest in Yahweh to see his children succeed. Don't you love to see your kids do well? Don't you love to watch them do the things that they are supposed to do? Don't you love it when you're able to put the right tools in their hands and they make good use of those things that you've provided? Since we are in the family of God, our actions reflect upon our family. So we have a God who says, come and speak to me. Talk to me about what's going on in your heart. Tell me what you need. And that's the kind of father that's gonna wanna see his children succeed. He's gonna want to bless us in the right ways. So this should give us a boldness as we approach him in prayer. Let us think about the right expectations to have as we approach God in prayer. We can, because of our status in the family of God himself, we can pray expecting that whatever answer God provides for us will be for our good. Now, it might not necessarily be exactly what we wanted, We almost always go into prayer with a hopeful result. We think, with my limited knowledge, here's how I would like to see the scenario play out. And we share that opinion with the Lord God. We share our perspective with him. We're honest about our passions and our desires. We're honest with how we would like to see things play out. But as Christ teaches us the proper way to pray, and we're not quite to the point yet where it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're gonna spend a lot of time in that in weeks to come. But when we have the attitude that God is a father who is over us, we should come with our petitions with a loose grip on them, ready for God to take them out of our hands and to adjust them and to put them back into our hands with his amendments. Because God knows what is a better solution to our problems than we could ever know. So because of our status in the family of God, we should pray expecting that whatever Answer, God provides for us, it will be for our good. Luke 11, verse 13 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Think about that. You've probably, at one point in another, if you've got kids, you've had a gift you could not wait to give to them right? You saw something that you were like, my kid's going to flip over this. And you just happened to have the resources and the Lord had blessed it and aligned things just properly. You were able to buy that thing and you could not wait to give it to your child. And that's how the Lord is with us. There are things that he is so excited for us to receive. There are things for us to learn that he cannot wait to teach us. There are things that he is going to rejoice in providing for us. And we should remember that God is not a God who gives begrudgingly. He's not the God who goes to hide every time we come to him with a petition. He is ready to engage us in our needs. And he has infinite resources to meet those needs. Now, does this mean your father is going to give you all that you want? No, it does not. Because not, God is not just a father to you. He is a good father. Father. And he with his superior authority over you and wisdom about you and love for you will certainly give you what is good and not what is evil. And friends, sometimes even with the best of intentions, you ask God for what is not good. There are times when you pray passionately, sincerely, and intently for exactly the opposite thing that God knows you need. And if God is a good God, he's not going to just say, well, I guess if you want it, here you go. Can you imagine what a dad would be like if everything his child asked for? He gave that to them.
2: Mm.
0: Is that a good father? That is not a good father. That's not a father in all. That's a codependent. That is an enabler. And so if God is going to be a good father to us, there must be discretion in how he answers our prayers. A good father, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give to him bread. He's going to provide for him the thing that he needs. But a good father, if his son comes to him and asks him for a poisonous snake, is he going to give him a poisonous snake? No, because he's a good father. Now, what we ask of our God may often look purely reasonable to us. And we might struggle to see why God would have any reason not to give us the thing that we've asked him for, the thing that we desire. But remember that to the mind of a seven-year-old boy, having a rattlesnake as a pet might sound perfectly reasonable in their head, right? They might ask their dad to to give them something that could do them great harm. But because dad knows better, he loves them enough to say no to them. And, And we might think we're mature beyond those days, but there are things that you will ask of your God that seem perfectly good to you, but are actually the exact opposite of what you need. So God, as a good father, will not always give you exactly what you want, but he knows better than you what you should want. Which also brings us to another question. As we look at the preface to this Lord's Prayer, when it says, Our Father, does that mean that we may only pray to God the Father? Well, Jesus prays always to God the Father, doesn't he? In John 14, verses 15 through 17, we read, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so Jesus is speaking here in John 14 about how he will pray to the father for the needs of the church. And if you've read on in John chapter 17, you see the high priestly prayer, which is extended petition on on behalf of the church from Jesus to the Father. So Jesus prays consistently to the Father. And we know that praying to anyone who is not God is certainly wrong, don't we? The scripture teaches us that we shall not commune with the dead. In Isaiah 8, 19, it says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, What sense is there in following after those in the world who may suggest to us that we try to seek communion with those who have passed on? Isaiah the prophet is warning us, we've been told who to talk to when we have a need. It's not Aunt May who passed away. It's not your best friend that got in that car accident. He's not here anymore. We're not to go and pray to these ones who have gone before us. We're to pray to the God who created them. This applies also to those who are in the Roman Catholic tradition, many of whom have been taught since they were little to ask Mary and the saints to pray for them on their behalf. And, and, you know, if you get into a conversation with Roman Catholics, often you say, well, why do you pray to Mary? They'll say, we don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to the saints. We pray and ask those saints. We pray and ask Mary to pray for us. You see, they have a special status with the Lord God. They have a greater piety than we do, so we think their prayers carry more weight. And so we go to them and ask for them to petition on our behalf so they might be a blessing and a benefit to us. Does that make any sense at all, friends? Who are the saints of God? If you are a believer, you are a saint of God. The scripture calls you a saint. There's no application process there's no criteria other than faith in Jesus Christ. When you have given the the life that God gave to you back to him, you are now a saint. And so we make a big mistake when we begin to think of our brothers and sisters in Christ as existing on some sort of tiered hierarchy. That if you're a higher class Christian, then your prayers carry more weight than some lowly individual. Most of the prayers that are lifted up to us is a good example of what can be done or should be done are the prayers of the lowly and the humble, not of the superstars of the faith. Remember what 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You don't need a saint to be a mediator for you. You don't need Mary to try to convince her son to give you what you need. Go to the Father through Christ. And as your mediator, that means that You really can't even pray to God the Father unless you're praying through your mediator, Jesus Christ. So we should not restrict ourselves to praying only to the one person of the Trinity, only to the Father. While there is a pattern here that's worth following, and the Father should very regularly be the one to whom we address our prayers, in our minds should be the fact that our mediator, Jesus, is the one who makes it possible for us to even speak to the Father God. And then we're also told that the Holy Spirit interprets our groanings in Romans 8. Verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now again, friends, if the Holy Spirit is doing this for you, do you need Timothy or St. Ignatius or some other saint to do it? The Holy Spirit is interpreting your prayers for you. And he's pretty good at everything that he does. We don't need a human intermediary. Jer- Jesus serves as an adept mediator between God and man. He is an advocate on our behalf. Hebrews 12:24 says, "And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." And so Jesus is described here as the mediator of the new covenant. He in fact is seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now and constantly intercedes for the saints. I mean, that's a a humbling thing to think of, friends. When you're struggling, when you're hurting, do you remember the fact that Jesus, the very Son of God, is praying for you right now? I mean, it might feel good to know your pastor's praying for you, or your brothers and sisters at church are praying for you, and that's important, but don't forget that Christ himself is interceding on your behalf to the throne of God right now. What a powerful thing to think about, especially if we're in a time of great trial or affliction. Hebrews four fourteen. one more passage from Hebrews for us tonight. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does this tell us? tells us that Jesus is an adept and a capable mediator. You don't have to search through the history of the church and find some saint who's kind of like you, who will understand your heart and who struggled through the same things that you did so that you can pray a prayer to him that he'll then bounce like a a volleyball setter up to God so that he can spike it down for you. Now, this this is Jesus, the son of God, who knows your heart and has been afflicted in all ways as you have been afflicted and yet has never failed. He has never sinned. Trust that God has provided for you all the mediation that you need through Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. The scripture sees Jesus as such an equivalent to the I am, to the Father, that in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You ever notice that before? There's a, there's a hint of Trinitarian doctrine in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, because here the Son is even properly and appropriately given the name Everlasting Father. So when we pray to God the Father, we shouldn't do so without having Christ or the Holy Spirit in mind. Our prayers should be Trinitarian prayers. If the pattern is set for us to, to preface our prayers, thanking God who is in heaven, the Father who is in heaven, then that's, that's fine, and that should be stereotypical of how we pray to the Lord God. There is nothing wrong to praying specifically to the Holy Spirit and asking for the enlightenment that we know the Scripture tells us He gives. There's nothing wrong to praying to the Son and thanking Him for the intercessory work that He has done for us, thanking Him for His perfect service to the Father and His perfect, complete keeping of the Word. We can pray to all three members of the Godhead. So we are not ignoring Jesus nor the Holy Spirit when we address our prayers to God the Father. And we will learn in due time that our prayers are rightfully addressed in Jesus' name and pray through the help of the Spirit, which are two topics we will be looking at in the weeks to come. Now, because we pray to the Father, we pray to him with a sense of familiarity. Psalm verse 43, uh, chapter 43, rather, verse 4. It says, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Romans 8, 15, which we've looked at briefly already tonight. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father. And so there is a connection to the one that we are praying to. This is not like standing in the line at the DMV and petitioning for that person who can hand you the registration card you need, right? There's an interaction between the living God who loves you and knows you from the inside out. And so we approach a God who understands us. We approach a God who knows how many hairs rest upon our head. We approach a God who cares for us so, so completely that he has made promises to us that he will never break. We could have been instructed by Jesus to frame our prayers like this, creator to whom I owe all things. That would be right. He could have said, perfect judge, my soul is in the palm of your hand. He could have told us to pray, author of life, all things depend on you. But instead, Jesus here tells us to pray like he prays to the father, one who not only made me, but loves me. To the one whose image I bear as I walk through this life. Because we pray to the father, we pray with familiarity. But because he's a father over us, we also pray with a sense of holy and reverent fear towards him. In 1 Peter 1 verses 14 through 19, the scripture tells us as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So because God is our father, there's a familiarity. We go to him knowing that he knows us better than we even know ourselves. But knowing that he knows us better than we know ourselves, that means he knows our sin. That means he knows our faults and our failures and our fears. And so we come to him like a little child comes to their mighty father with a sense of of respect as well, with a sense of awe and wonder for the power that our God holds over us and for the authority that he rightly expresses over his children. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse two says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, be careful that you don't just blaze into prayer demanding things from God or acting like that spoiled child whose daddy gives him everything. God is the one who has authority over us. And so our prayers should be a time of welcoming where we come near to the Lord, but also a time when we show him the respect that he deserves. We are known by our God, but we know enough to know that he has power over us and has the right to correct those who belong to him. So be honest with God in your prayers, but do not be flippant with him. Be transparent with God, but do not be proud. Be bold in your prayers, but at the same time, come to him with a humble heart, knowing that he knows exactly what you need. Now, the last element of significance in the preface to the Lord's Prayer has to do with where the Father is. Now, this might be somewhat confusing because we know from good doctrine that God is unique, from all that he has created in that there is nowhere that God is not, right? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we don't serve a God who is localized or who has to go from one place to another because at all times, the presence of God is imminent. It is everywhere. Acts 7 verses 48 through 50 says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So here we have a grandiose picture of this God to whom we can speak. He's a God who is everywhere all the time. But there is something significant about the fact that God is the one who dwells, especially in heaven. Heaven is throughout the scripture described as the particular dwelling place of God. And so in 2 Chronicles 20, verse six, O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdom of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And this is a prayer of exaltation given from Jehoshaphat and the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem when they're dedicating the temple, I believe. And so this expresses the fact that that the Lord God dwells in heaven and is above all of the kingdoms of of the earth, even those kingdoms to whom he has delegated authority for kings and rulers to be sub-rulers for him, he still sits above ruling ultimately every aspect of what he's created. In Job 22, verse 12, it says, Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. So when we think of God being in heaven, it reminds us that he is greater than us. It reminds us that he holds a position that enables him to see all things. When we think of God in heaven, it reminds us of his omniscience because there is nothing that he cannot look down and behold with his eyesight. And so why is this relevant to our prayers? It should be a comfort to us that he is above and ruling all things. It should be a a sweetness to our soul to know that nothing that is happening in this earth escapes his vision. When we go to prayer, we're not telling God anything that he doesn't already know, right? And so some people would say, well, then why pray? It's a waste of time. It's for your heart. It's to remind you that the God you're speaking to knows everything that you already are concerned about. And he's already got 25 steps planned out way ahead that you don't even see yet. So when you've forgotten that God exists in a sovereign state, providentially directing all things according to the counsel of his will and to his decree, and then you go to God in prayer and you begin to remember, wait, the God that I'm talking to is my father in heaven. He loves me and has authority over me, and he sees everything before me. There is nothing that I could bring to him that would surprise him or make him scratch his head. He knows it all. He has a plan. The answer is already in his head. Through the wonder of prayer, we have access to that transcendent, holy God. Let us marvel at the gift that prayer is to us. He's under no obligation to regard the things that we think or say. He is in heaven. He is above. He is self-sufficient, hence always existed. What word could we say to spark his interest? What counsel could we deliver that would improve the stances that he has taken on the affairs of the world? What plan or desire could we reveal that would improve upon what God has already planned to do? And yet he still bids us, come my child, come and talk to me. Do not let much time go by before you see me again. Share with me what's in your heart. Tell me your desires. Confess your fears to me, child. We are to love this God. And one of the ways that we love him is through interaction with him. Before I I came to church tonight, I ran home, I got some lunch. Had a lot to do because I wasn't planning to preach this sermon until next week. So I've been trying to get it all together in time. But I sat on the couch and my little girl who was trying to avoid nap time ran from mommy and jumped up into my lap and put her head down on my chest. And we just sat there. And I just let myself, even though I had a lot to do, I let myself drift away for just 15 or 20 minutes with my little girl. And just that time together with her was such a highlight of my day, just such a blessing to have her fall asleep, safe in my arms, and to know that she's with me. God loves his people. And he calls us to prayer so that we will seek him out. So that we will have that closeness with him that even when life seems so difficult and the answers seem far from our understanding, that the God who is providentially over all things says, come to me, child. And he wraps his arm around us and reminds us that he is the one who's in charge. Lamentations 3, verses 40 through 41 says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. May we ever be, a people who values prayer. Would you pray with me briefly? God, we thank you for your heart for us, Lord. And it's appropriate for us to stop and pause after teaching like this and just remember what a good thing it is to go to you in prayer. And so we thank you that you are Father over us. And we thank you that you are in heaven on high, that you're not off on some assignment in the far corners of your creation, not able to see or or deal with what's going on here, Lord God. You are in heaven And you see all things. And you value such small things as us. You know us by name. You know every struggle that we deal with, Lord. And you know the ways that you'll provide for our needs. We belong to you. And so God, help us to to cherish prayer. Help us to not let our prayer time be the first thing that suffers when our day gets busy and our schedule gets full. Let us take the time to speak with you and to appeal to you and to rest in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so we do have I preached a little longer than I thought I would tonight, but we do have a little bit of time. Thank you, Ross, for running the slides for me. You were very good. Appreciate you, brother. But if anybody had any uh, anybody had any questions or comments on what was preached tonight, uh, we always love to have some time for interaction afterwards. So anything anybody wanted to share or ask for clarification upon? Adam. How firm are you in the poisonous snake thing? So I know we're. In- some pretty good deals <laughs> smart Alec, kid of mine yeah. I actually uh, I had a king snake growing up but it wasn't poisonous and it was like the dumbest pet ever don't get a snake they just they don't really love you they're just there you know if you throw a mouse in there every once in a while they'll eat it but they're not really a fun pet there's, there's a lot of other cooler pets to get save up for a tiger yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Those
0: are any other questions or comments guys yeah, John.
3: the the saying, Well that's you and that's me without the grace of God, I'm not a child molester. I'm not of this. I'm not of that. And I said, well, by God's grace, you are. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I said, Jesus called his own disciples evil. And I mean, what does that mean? When we start comparing ourselves to other people, may are not as bad as this person or that person. But we forget about God's restraining grace yeah. in our lives, you know. And... We should know that by looking at his word, by reading the law. So I thought that was really awesome when you brought mm-hmm. that verse up. And just, you know, hearing a, a message recently on prayer and providence from Sproul, just, you know, you can tell when you're here in the gym, when you start going through, uh, you know, the part where you talked about God providing what we need, not just what what, um, what we want, right? If we ask yeah. anything, let's think of the first John 5. We ask anything according to His will; He yeah. hears us, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that we ask, and God withholds from us because He loves us, right? Yeah. So that was, was a blessing.
0: Amen. You know, and there's a there's a, a hitch to that as well, where the people of God, if they consistently ask for what they should not ask for, there are times that God providentially says, "Is that what you really want?" Here you go, and He gives you that thing that you have desired so much for that he has withheld from you to show you that your desires need to change, to show you that your trust needs to be in the Lord and not in what you want. Because sometimes the things that we think are perfectly good for us, when we gain it, it ends up being a poison to us rather than a blessing. And then we, we realize that I remember distinctly at one point in my life as a young man where in frustration, through tears, I, I was tired of praying for what I wanted over and over again from the Lord. And I just said, God, God, Quit making, quit allowing me to to come before you and demand my own will. I just want what you want for me. Just help me to want what you want for me. Change my heart so that my desires will match your desires. And uh, and you know, I, I still need to pray that prayer because I as you know, as a man who's more mature than I used to be, I still find myself wanting things that if I stopped and really really diagnosed diagnosed it, it wouldn't be something that would draw me nearer to the Lord. It wouldn't be something that was a benefit to my family it'd be just something for me that it would probably end up causing me to stumble
2: go ahead i was gonna to say too along those lines sometimes god knows what our future holds and what his plans yeah. are for us and we don't know something that we think would be perfectly wonderful like me wanting in a so- another person. yeah i might know something else is coming down the line yeah, I yeah that's know true something else plan. So it's true. I think that's like when you said we have to hold our requests loosely. That's just really good. We have to remember that
0: God really knows yeah. what's best. Yeah, that's yeah. part of the interaction. You know, I like a, a lot of people really wish that prayer was more God talking directly to us than us talking back to God. There, I think we, we sometimes want God to, to be more human than he is. And we forget that the way that he answers our prayers is so often through the Word. <laughs> through the scriptures, So we'll pray to him. We'll put our desires out on the table. And then we're also reading the word because that's another means of grace that God has given. And as we read the word, we say, wait a minute, part of what I've been praying for doesn't match what God tells me I should be wanting here. And that's that's literally the Lord speaking to me and and reminding me that he's got a better plan for me than I had for myself. So let the word be God's way of speaking back to you. You don't need a still small voice that you know, individually speaks right into your situation all the time because the word is sufficient for us. We don't we don't really need that individual prophetic revelation that so many people think they have to have in order to have an authentic experience with God. The word is an authentic experience with God. Go ahead, Fred. Yeah, I mean, we were talking earlier about about God being the father I, mean, I
2: think especially in today's culture with you know high divorce rate, broken families, <coughs> and so. Yeah. That was a beautiful story about, you know, the time you spent with your little girl. And uh, we can all relate to that because we've probably been probably pretty for good fathers. But you know, we, we, do to, we do have to be careful about the person's background because sometimes people the father who could be the who's supposed to protect them the most uh, yeah. also tends to be the most abusive. Right. Uh, and uh, which is why a lot of people maybe, you know, don't don't relate to it. God the Father, well, you know, if He has you know, like the father I had, and I
0: want no pardon. Right, but the, the very fact that they experienced tragedy in that means they know that they didn't get what they should have. That there was a there was a disconnect between true fatherhood and the father that they experienced. Right, so I, that's why I urge people to think about God as being the ideal of everything that fatherhood should be. A lot and I, of people, especially young,
2: people, yeah, that have been in that situation wouldn't know.
0: It definitely takes some training, right? Uh, that's There's mentoring that needs to happen with people who have been given bad pictures of, of fatherhood, bad pictures of motherhood, who've, who've been injured by people who were given a, a holy and a faithful charge to raise a child in love and grace and did not. And, and so praise God that often the Lord will use a church as a way to help somebody kind of Rise out of that sort of a situation and to see things differently than what their experiences have taught them. And I think we all need that, right? We all need an adjustment. When our experience, when we look at the the vast experiences we've had in our lives, often we've been taught wrongly about things that we need to know the truth about. And the scripture tells us the truth. But yes, we we do need to be sensitive to those who've gone through different. That's part of why I I mentioned it in 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 the sermon. Psalm 27 is one we have a lot of broken young men at our church who
2: haven't experienced any fatherhood at all. Yeah. Well, and, uh, the, the, the incarceration, they, uh, the incarceration yeah, especially in the younger generation. Fatherless right. or, you know, yeah. So, yeah well, I are right, when, when they are presented with the gospel in the proper way, and especially, uh, you know, they,
0: they can't come to Christ. I can testify personally, and then we'll go to, then we'll go to Ross, and then I think uh, Jay had his hand up in the back. But when I was young, my dad was in and out of jail. You know, I, my dad was not around a lot of the time. And when he was, there was a lot of violence in my home and he was, he was a drunk. So when I received Christ, my grandparents who were like a, basically two of the most authentic believers in my life, they showed me who Jesus was. And I began to listen to the fact that I had, I could have a father in heaven and I I didn't have, you know, a, a responsible present father on earth. And really, that appealed so greatly to my heart. And I remember distinctly thinking about the fact that, man, a father who's in heaven is a father who never leaves you. Who's a father who's around and who who doesn't change his mind at at the the snap of a finger, right? He, this is a God who I can trust. And it changed my attitude towards fatherhood personally. So I know every experience is probably a little bit different, but but I I remember rejoicing in in the, the idea that a God who whom I had offended with my sin would love me anyway and would draw me nearer to him through his son Jesus. No, you know, there are men, though, like I was telling you, they've never even experienced
3: what you have with your grandparents. Yeah. And, um, you know, the reason why I keep bringing up Psalm 27 is because when it says, when your mother and your father forsake you, the Lord will take care of Amen. you. Amen. Mm-hmm. And they need to understand that God is so much greater than sinners. I mean, and like you say, He uses a means of the church and other people, yeah. but we can point people to Christ and show them, and not just point people to Christ, but to, you know, we're commanded to be to the younger men, you know, as fathers, you know, and so and, and the women are commanded to be a certain way towards the young women, and so they may see only in us a father that they may have never had. That's why we should be willing to be around people and disciple them. Spend time with them so that they, we can pour Christ into them, mm-hmm. and that may be, you know, that all that they
2: ever have. I know older men, men that are older than me, that never had a father. Mm-hmm. And when I tell
3: them I had a father, it just it breaks my heart because I can see some of the things that uh, that they lack. But I, I tell them, whatever your need has been and lacking, Christ will provide. Amen. My God will provide all your needs, right? So my yeah. mother, she—I mean, my uh, my wife, her mother. My mother-in-law was horrible to my wife, but God has provided two her women in her life that have pointed her back to the Lord. So
1: yeah. know, God is faithful to us in that way.
0: Amen. Ross, you had a comment?
1: Um, I was going to add to Fred's comment. Uh, there's a spectrum of our experiences with our father. Everyone could have their, their own story, but it could be the... <clears throat> the father that you never met because they took a hike. It could be um, a father that physically was present and it seemed regretful because all they are is violent. It could be, you know, in, in my case, my father did some good things and I was uh, always happy when he did some good things, but he made liberal use of the ring on his finger to whack me in the head when I didn't empty the trash. and. You know, my experience with my dad was really, on on average, just not good. It's not that I didn't want any part of him, but that could certainly be a case in some of our cases. Uh, and, you know, Carol had a dad who just never attended anything. Uh, and it's like, why? You know, that's not very loving. So there's there's a whole spectrum of experiences. And then when we look at God, the Heavenly Father, and his perfection and we grow as we continually be sanctified and we see that all right he's not always given us what i asked for immediately but every time we look back and we look at where we are and where we would have been if he gave us if we had our way that um over time we will see his wisdom and appreciate his um Knowing us and and being that loving heavenly Father, uh, what Carol had mentioned about we pray for things and and we don't even realize that God has something better in mm. store for us. And some of you have already heard this, but our, when our daughter Desi was 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 three years old and it was her first opportunity, our first opportunity to take her to Disneyland, and so mm-hmm. we packed the car and we go down to. Disneyland, and we got a mile away from Disneyland and we're driving and and she sees a McDonald's and she loves McDonald's and the play structure, the playhouse and all that kind of stuff. And she says, I want to go to McDonald's. Desi, we're going to Disneyland. I want to go to McDonald's. She had like a royal fit because (laughs) she really wanted mcdonald's it's like we're trying could have saved yourself
0: a couple hundred bucks brother
1: (laughs) (laughs) we as you know as her earthly father i'm trying to take her to disneyland and she was just absolutely had her heels dug in i want mcdonald's so we don't know what our our heavenly father sees or Mm -hmm. knows of of our future but um we learn as time goes on more and more how his his holiness, his righteousness, uh, his omniscience, every you know, everything put together, he has in store for us what is good and right, yeah. even if it isn't our interpretation. Yeah. Right, good. good share. Jason? Speaking of
0: like, all sins are equal to God? Is that, like, my understanding? That, right? Well, that's a doctrine we can talk about. I don't think I really mentioned that earlier, but... Um, I think,
2: uh, well, I actually picked it up from this gentleman right here. From John? Again, yeah. I could just misunderstood it. Yeah. Um, but is that, like, a thing? Or is, is every sin considered equal?
0: Yeah, so in the book of James, we're told that if you have committed...
2: I may have misunderstood. No,
0: I, up. I think right. you're you talking about your friend, Eric... And he said, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed these things. And then you were talking about how we all have sinned to such a degree that we're all guilty before the Lord. So, uh, you know, there's a couple of couple of wrong ways that people can look at things. You know, some people will classify sin in their own head thinking that, well, there's the bad, bad sins. And then there's just like the little sins that I do that don't really matter. Right. And and so they'll think my white lie would not condemn me to hell. My, you know, taking a little something that wasn't mine and not paying for it doesn't condemn me to hell. But I've, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. But in reality, in James, it says that if you have committed one sin, then you are a breaker of the law of God. It says you are guilty of all of this sin. You have, you have now fallen short of the glory of God. So there's not a single person that we could find. We could canvass the whole neighborhood. And find the holiest person we could come across who's tried so hard in their lives to do what is good before God, they would still be worthy of of hell.
3: And, I was talking about capability of sin, like yeah. Like I was talking about God's restraining grace. Like for instance, if you know, you were to murder me, that'd be different than if someone just hated you, right? Um, some sins are crimes. Adultery is a crime, yeah. punishable by death. Uh, it's not the same as Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, obviously, if I were to cheat on my wife, it's a lot more severe than looking at lust. What I was talking about is God's restraining, God's sovereign grace in restraining sin and the capability of we're capable of being saved Yeah. And so what he was offended by was, well, I'm not like a child molester. I'm not like a murderer. And I'm like, well, you may have never done those things. It's only because of the grace of God, you certainly have the capability to become a human. It could be you know? in
1: the right circumstance.
3: Exactly. Right. I mean, there's enough hatred in our heart to wipe out every nation on the planet. You know, so I don't I think he just didn't see his sinfulness like he should because he says, Well, God sees, he knows all my sins, but I'm like, well no, God has powerful. over your sins. It's like known from known from eternity to God are all of his works. Mm-hmm. God doesn't just see the future, He He commands the future, He decrees everything that comes to pass. So it just I wasn't saying that all sins are equal because they clearly are. Yeah. So that makes me to a second question. Yeah.
2: Uh, okay. And this uh this might be different depending on the age group in the room because I was around for this. But that Jeffrey Dahmer documentary had just come out, and uh, I watched the entire thing, and obviously he did a horrible thing. Like, he had murdered 17 people, uh, it was thought that it was racially motivated at that, and he had eaten some of the corpses. Uh, but then it also showed at the end, he became uh, a Baptist Christian, and he got baptized before he was brutally murdered in prison. Mm-hmm. Was he saved, or was the sins too great?
0: Okay, so let me answer both those questions. The second one, there are no sins that are too great for God to save. If Hitler would have been grabbed a hold of by the Holy Spirit and his heart was changed, then God could have redeemed him. There is no sin that we can commit that's mightier than the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. So that's the answer to the second question. The answer to the first question is is a question we would have to ask the Lord. Because I, I can't tell whether Jeffrey Dahmer's, Dahmer's uh, repentance was a true repentance. I can tell you that I've been around a lot of people who did some bad stuff and they know, they know in their hearts that there's a God and they've been caught now. And so there's no getting away from the penalty and it's right before them. And because of their desperation to wanna to think, I'm not gonna to go to hell, they'll say whatever they need to say to, to ease their, their burning conscience and to make them think I'm gonna be all right. But is there really true repentance there? So true repentance would, would correlate with the Holy Spirit changing your heart about the sins that you committed. Uh, Was Jeffrey Dahmer humbled by the Lord? Did he feel great contrition for what he had done? Did he recognize that no amount of, you know, pious religious work could ever wash his record clean, that it was going to take the blood of Jesus to make him new? Did he recognize that the power of the blood of Jesus was greater than his sin and could make him new? Then if so, he certainly could have been saved. Now, for us to know that, like, Jay, I don't know, man, like, You'd have to be around the guy. You'd have to have interacted with him. And I wasn't the chaplain that worked with him. But I know there's some really faithful men and women who go into prisons and, and preach the gospel to people and, and, and plead with them. You know, you're on a path to destruction. In fact, the man who preached the message where I gave my life to Christ was an ex-con who went to jail for 10 years on a murder rap. He didn't commit murder, but he was in the room and he took the rap for it. And the guy who did the crime ran, and he didn't squeal on him, so he went to prison. And when he was in prison, he was involved with gangs. He realized how stupid it was. Somebody came and preached the gospel to him in tears. He gave his life to the Lord and then spent the rest of his time studying the Bible in prison. When he got out, he started traveling around preaching the gospel to people. And uh
2: Yeah.
1: We know well, yeah. We don't, God
2: doesn't do that. Know that no. he, he, he was insane
0: to begin. I read the article. He was. Ins, I read the article about, and he, he was. He's insane to begin with. He was. He was in yeah. for a different murder rap. And yeah. he, now the death penalty is a real thing. You know, in Scripture it says that if somebody's committed murder, then they're liable to justice, and that could include the death penalty. So uh, you know, it's. God's law has said that it's not wrong to put a, a murderer to death for their sin if they've been found guilty of it. But did God appear to that guy in the cell and say, "Deliver justice"? That didn't happen. The guy was just looking for an excuse, and he wanted he wanted God's permission to commit sin. And that's that's a terrible thing too. So, you know, but um,
2: like to go back to the man on the cross, you know, with Jesus, and yeah. So it, I mean, it does show us that it's no no sin was unredeemable because. That man who was sentenced to die for his crimes, which were, we don't really know what exactly they were, but they were enough to warrant him to be put to death.
0: Executed, yeah.
2: Had contrition in his heart and recognized Jesus for who he was, and that was enough for him to be in heaven that same day. It's true faith. That's, that's you know.
0: Yeah, and let's not forget that the man who's, who wrote much of the scripture that was up on the screen tonight, Paul, the apostle, he ordered the, the murder of Christians. And before he was converted, he was responsible for the death sentence of many brothers and sisters in faith. He persecuted the church until God grabbed a hold of him and said, Why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you resisting the gospel? This is my work. And he was humbled and he was brought low. And he put his whole life that he had built up this this effort that he put into becoming a Pharisee and gaining a name for himself and becoming educated by the best of the teachers. Gamaliel was this wonderful teacher that had been his mentor. He put all that behind him to follow after Christ. And God can redeem the worst of sinners. So it's, mm-hmm. it is possible. Brian, last one, and then we probably got to wrap it up. Um, yeah. God, God's grace is beyond. His mercy is more. His sacrifice, uh, it's beyond comprehension. Um, but I just wanted to thank you sir. Uh, I just wanted to add on that <laughs> one thing that for some reason by God's declaration he has he has made one thing here uh, no, he Why? The, he the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. And one thing to to notice about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and I, you know I, I wondered if someone would bring that up, is that he never says that he can't forgive it. He says that he will not forgive it. So it's not that his power is not there to overcome it, but blasphemy of the the Holy Spirit is such a public and distinct declaration of I care so little about the things of God that I will lie and say that what God did through Christ was actually the work of the devil in Christ. That's such a blatant opposition to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus says that kind of blasphemy will not be forgiven. And that, that individual their hearts clearly rejected Christ and will not ever receive him. So yeah, yeah, there is that that one exception. Good discussion about whether that can still be committed today is worth having at some point, you know, because we don't see the manifestation of miraculous signs in Jesus that those Pharisees saw and then gave credit to Satan for. So it's, we might not even be able to commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. But, uh, but again, could Christ's, sacrifice, overcome that? It could, but because of God's providential decree, it will not. Well, thank you all for your great discussion questions. I've really appreciated the time that you spent with us tonight, and uh, tell your friends to come to Sunday evenings. I think these robust kind of conversations about the scripture are beneficial to us. I know I grow through these things, so, so let's encourage others. I know it's one thing to have your pastor try to guilt you into coming, and, and uh, Ross did a great job today. Yeah. But, you know, it's another Still thing if you just now. if you call up your friend, and you say, hey, let's go. Let's go to your new service together. You know, that's I think that would be effective as well. So let's encourage others to come. But you guys are dismissed. Have a great night and we'll uh, we'll see you again next week.